Hey up and welcome to the Temple of Blair. In a very, very, very special episode, this is a conversation with Kenny Hickey and Johnny Kelly of Typo Negative. We're getting together to celebrate the 30th anniversary reissue of the band's debut record on Roadrunner Records, Slow, Deep and Hard. The reissue should be available for pre-order by the time you're hearing this on Run Out Groove. And for those of you looking at the YouTube video, yes, that is Pantone 369. Now my voice is completely fucked. Just enjoy this one. One, two, fuck it up. So, when you were in your mid-twenties, did you look forward to your fifties when you'd be talking about a grainy image of a man's penis? It's an interesting question. I definitely wasn't looking forward to my fifties. I didn't think I'd ever make it to my fifties. Yeah, I didn't look that. I didn't look that far ahead. I, mean, I planned on dying in my thirties. I didn't know. What, I don't know what the hell happened. I thought I would be retired from this in my thirties. You like can't retire I, from talking about dicks. Thirty. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was like back then. I was like, you know, thirties old. <laughs> you know, this is a young man's sport, well, a young you know, young person's sport. <laughs> and well, I just thought, I just thought that thirty would be too old. And now here I am in my fifties, and I'm still doing this. Yeah, you can't. It, it's. When I'm going through this project, I'm speaking to a lot of people like in the 60s and 70s, like Dave King from Battle Axe, like it's all new ever British heavy metal band, and he's just fucking gunning for it nonstop. And I'm just King Diamond just turned 65 yesterday. Fucking hell. You don't quit this game, man. It's not yeah, possible. There's only a few people that I know of that can actually that actually got out. <laughs> And, you know, like, like went on to, you know, do something, you know, completely outside of music, like Josh, hmm. Josh escaped. Yeah. And, and he, hasn't, he hasn't looked back since. I like I use the word got out, like it's the mafia. It kind of is. It's more, it's like a tar pit, you know. <laughs> and we're like, it's dinosaur. <laughs> well, slow, deep and hard. It's been 30, 30 fucking years. Um, and as I understand it, there is a reissue in the works, a reissue vinyl that was, uh, that's going to be generated by, who is it? Is it Run On Vinyl? The guys that did the, um, or Run Out Groove, sorry, Run Out Groove. And they did the None More Negative uh, yeah. box set and a few other bits as well. They're quite active on like the vinyl front. But now the, uh, the old dogs get in the treatment as well. It was the beginning. <laughs> To me, it was it, honestly, and I think in all honesty, I think that was my favorite typo record. You know, I wasn't even in the band then, but it still, you know, it had that much of an impact on me when I first heard it. Yeah, tell me about that then, because in fact, you know, what? I'm I'm going to stick to my own script here, and I'm going to actually read off the synopsis of Typo's first actual Roadrunner release, which was a compilation called Breaking Barriers. Now, this thing came out in. Um, was it? Yeah, it came out in Holland in 1991. You shared a CD with Last Crack, Zentrix, and LAPD, and they put zero tolerance on it. And it's like a, it was obviously a, a promo thing. Dude, this is the first time I'm ever hearing of this. Yeah, I know. I, I, you know, I saw this in your email, and I, I couldn't even find anything about it. I was like, what is he talking about? I have a tendency to dig shit like this up, man. Don't worry about it. So, ah, you're worse than my wife. We dig it up. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm going to bleep out. This, this is what 91. 
This is ninety one. So it was oh, it was a few. They wanted us dead. They wanted us dead in ninety one. This ain't gonna be good. <laughs> that was before Slow Deep and Hard came out. It was a compilation CD. It was a promo running up to. So wow. yeah, 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 yeah. Never heard so, of it. Okay, I'm gonna read the full thing for your benefit, and I'll bleep out the the, the bits I'll bleep out afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> okay, typo negative. The newest addition to the ever-diversifying road racer roster is the deranged brainchild of Peter Steele, former Carnivore leader. After two viciously hateful Roadrunner albums, Carnivore, 1985, and Retaliation, 1987, <laughs> Carnivore... <should> be hateful. <laughs> <laughs> this is not going to be good. <laughs> it gets better. <laughs> Carnivore disbanded in February 1988 leaving Peter to commence with an even more intense, more violent project. <laughs> Teaming up with keyboardist Josh, guitarist Kenny, and drummer Sal, the fourth officially formed Typo Negative in August of 1988. The title of their forthcoming Road Racer debut, Slow Deeping Hard, not only suggests the band's musical approach, but also applies the harsh sexual overtones that face the record. Peter picks up where Carnivore left off, taking the anguish and terror that was Carnivore to new and more dangerous extremes engulfing the listener in a gloriously dark world of anger, destruction, pain, and fear. Elements of raw thrash, hardcore grunge, and industrial music combine with haunting keyboards and gruesome sound effects to create a sound that one noted journalist described as... Holy <laughs> dark. Oh, shit. <laughs> with typo negative, you will be... Slow, deep, and hard. And depending on the threshold of your your threshold of pain, you'll have no choice but to find yourself immersed in blissful agony, screaming for more. That's okay. So question- that was a little rough, a little harsh. <laughs> I mean, I think it was a little exaggerated, but you know, a lot of it fits. In hindsight, did, did Roderick do a good job in selling you boys in that? <laughs> not scathing particular in that particular. So those are people on our team. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that was the creative brilliance of our of, of Team Roadrunner. <laughs> with the music, I mean, what's wrong with them, man? How many units would you like to buy? <laughs> I mean, I hope they're still not using the same lines <laughs> for the new bands. Do you think the kind of our comparisons, uh, in hindsight? probably a little bit stretched these days or do you think they're still I thought that carnivore was a much more provocative band much more yeah. pushing the you know like getting close to that edge than what typo was mm. typo was a lot of metaphors uh, uh, like, uh, carnivore was also more like um sci-fi kind of like, like more black metal so, oh, primitive yeah it's i think the whimsy of Carnivore in the delivery, like the boyish dressing up as fucking, you know, the Mad Max guys and, and, and giving it the substance through that is, I think that's still present in Slow, Deep and Hard. There is a whimsy in there, but oh, yeah. the substance yeah. is like, these are clearly older lads who, are, who have lived life a little bit more. And there's like a humorous cynicism in place of that brutality that Carnivore had. So I think it's like the wrapping paper is somewhat similar. I thought, Car- I thought Carnival was way more antagonistic. Yeah. Yeah, but it was also hum- it was also humorous. There was a lot right. of humor in Carnival too. It seems like a lot, a lot, a lot of people. I mean, shit in my pants as I wait for the repo lying in fetal position. 
That's fucking funny, man. I mean, it was a funny band. <laughs> we found we found it very funny. It know, was meant it, to be funny. I mean, yeah. it's it blatantly. We it's found it's, it, you know, it's we Peter's found sense of humor. In it. Yeah, and uh, you know, like the same same thing with with typo negative, and that was often overlooked. Yeah, and, and if it was like you know, if it was uh, approached with a, you know with an understanding of that, a lot of it was tongue in cheek. I, I think that people would have found the humor in it. That's what's missing from the review you just read. That Roadrunner, you know, completely like, missed, you know, the there course isn't of, one mention oh, of any irony is gone. Time. You know, the, the, uh, cynicism, <laughs> but whatever. I mean, they would probably, you know, when you think about it, they're selling records through whatever, you know, 14 year old kids. So I, I think most, you know, it, it went over most of their heads anyway. In their defense, they were still trying to figure out what it was too, and they didn't really understand what it was. Yeah, yeah. I was still trying to figure out what it was. I was in the studio recording it, and I was trying to figure out what the fuck <laughs> we were doing. I thought it was brilliant. And it, <laughs> yes, and, brilliant records. Like, totally given, brilliant. given the like the state of you know, like the other stuff that I was listening to at the time, and like you know, like like before the record came out, I was familiar with the band because. Kenny and I, we've been friends since we were teenagers, you know, like when I was in high school. We were friends. So, and, and so I, I knew what was going on with the band and like, you know, heard the demos and stuff like that. And then, you know, to, to what, what the band was trying to do in that current climate of music was like, it was completely unto itself. There wasn't anything like that going on. There really wasn't, uh, you know, he was taking influences like Leibach and all kinds of industrial stuff and stuff that none of us heard or listened to. Devo and like, you know, like a lot of, there's like a lot of like a very, a very strong pop element to every record that we did, including the first one as heavy mm -hmm. and as like a, whatever, as, you know, violent as that record could be viewed. It was still a lot of like, a, a lot of like these influences that were often overlooked. Which yeah. eventually, those uh, some of that stuff stayed with the band throughout entire throughout the band's entire career. Yeah, I mean that's part of why it's so resonant with people because the, the hooks are big fucking hooks. I mean, I know you're fucking someone else. That's that's ACDC, but turned the dirty and dirty. Amazing. It's brilliant. Yeah. yeah. What was the mood at the time? Great, the got a great melody line to it. Even my father liked that song. <laughs> and it's funny. <laughs> yeah, it's great. <laughs> And, was, if you, and if you, it, you I, I don't understand how people could not get the humor in that. Yeah, but, they didn't get very but, angry. The chorus like, in itself. How, how could you say, wow, these guys are really fucked up? And they, you know, like they, you know, we don't get it. <laughs> when, when the band started and, and, you, you know, this manifested in the repulsion demo, what was the mood at the time? Were the stakes low or was it people thinking really low? Just really fucking, wrong. we're just having fun. This is just a not necessarily well, no, a fuck about. No, I, mean, I, I think we all had different stakes in it, you know. I mean, Peter, as far as Peter was concerned, you know, he wanted to write, he wanted to make a record, you know, it was the artistic motivation with him. Mm. You know, Josh, even though he was 28 years old, was convinced he was 90, and this was his last chance in rock and roll. I'm old, you know, <laughs> uh, you know. Me and Sal, we were up and coming. We were young, younger, whatever. I was mid twenties. Sal was even younger than me. I was by early twenties. I was like, I think it was like twenty three or something like that. 
So for us, it was, you know, a chance to, you know, play with a great artist who, you know, had been a legend around the neighborhood forever. And, you know, maybe step out of Brooklyn and, you know, go on tour and be in a real band, you know. So everybody had kind of a different stake in it. Yeah. The stake was to make records and never leave Brooklyn, never cross a bridge. Yeah, Peter, I'm serious. You're laughing. Peter, <laughs> I had no design to like, you know, like to do that for to do like typo negative for a living. That was never he, part of his uh, part of his agenda at all. He hated it. Carnival played Baltimore once. He was still traumatized from it. <laughs> We're still complaining about it. Baltimore's a two like a three hour drive from Brooklyn. <laughs> Even when I joined the band, you know, a few years later after, you know. I joined the band in 93 and like, you know, Peter used to come, Peter used to come hang out at my shop. I used to work on cars. Peter used to come to my shop and hang out. And then right before I joined the band, even he told me then he was like, you know, don't quit your day job. It's not that kind of band. We're not going anywhere. You know, we'll play on the weekends and you know, that's it. And I was like, I don't care what we do. I was like, you know, I just want to be in the band. I was like, you know, I love, I love the band. I love the music. So whether we play in Brooklyn or if we don't, you know, we don't play at all. I was like, I, I had no interest. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but really that was like, you know, that, that was Peter's agenda. He had no plans on, you know, making a career out of it. We talked him into it. It took some time, but we finally talked him into it. Yeah. It's not until bloody kisses that he quits his job. Right. Yeah. yeah. He, quit, he quit his job after, a year after bloody kisses came out. <laughs> well we all did <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so when because the, the roadrunner story is Pete it's was wrong. it <laughs> <laughs> whatever it is it's wrong <laughs> right all right I'll, I'll give you the wrong story you can give me the right story so type <laughs> so Pete is still he's still signed to Roadrunner technically because he was a holdover from Carnival. I don't know what the legal term is, but when he was shopping repulsion round, um, that's when Monty gets in touch and says, I'm sorry, mate. It's actually, it's actually that's us that you're going to go to. That's true. That he signed true. for, he signed for another, I don't know how many records, one record. He had another record to go for them or something. Well, right. who knows back with their contracts back then, maybe he owed them 10 records. I don't really remember the number, but we were yeah. fucked. Yeah, their magic number was seven. <laughs> seven albums right. up so, soon after the second. Which is like your whole music career and somebody else's, you know? <laughs> and then, you know, I remember Josh being the most angry about it. I mean, I was like, all right, well, at least you know, we got a record label. But uh, Josh was, because, you know, Josh wanted to sign two Atlantic records. So he was kind of pissed off about it. And yeah. Peter was annoyed about it, but you know, Peter was annoyed at the label and hated everybody at the label because that's just how Peter was. You know, it, it, everything was fine and dandy when he first started his professional relationship with somebody, not not his band members, but with anybody in the industry. And then within two or three weeks of talking to him on the phone, he couldn't stand him and wanted to kill him. So you know, pretty much wanted to kill everyone at Roadrunner. Did that change the? Wanted to kill us too. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Figuratively and literally, <laughs> girlfriends too. Same thing. Would they, would they have like maybe a? I, I think in the beginning they had a two week, like uh, staying time, and then towards the end it was like hours before he wanted to kill him. 
but yeah, that, actually that that's that's true though. Like you know, the band was showcasing at the time and stuff, and then you know, word got back to Road Racer that you know that other labels were interested in Typo Negative. They realized that it was Peter, and then they got into it, and you know. But well, obviously the record got released on Road Racer, so we, we know the out. We know how it how it you know how that situation ended. Why did they pick the demo? Was it just a matter of them staking their claim, or was it? Is it just they won't give us any money to make a record? Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's made already. I know Peter was very pissed about that for. Uh, got to remember too uh, you know back then it wasn't like you know roadrunner was not the roadrunner that they were say like in the 2000s and stuff like that you know no one near it no there was small was small label from holland with a small office in manhattan and it had 80 zillion bands you never heard of here's a complete hail mary question but occurred to me five minutes before joining this call was connie barrett still around at this point is it connie barrett no, she was involved with Carnivore, correct? Yeah, and Crumb Suckers and Agnostic Front. Yeah. I think she was managing Carnivore for a little while. Correct, yeah. Yeah, I'm just wondering if she still had skin in the game at this point. No, no, she never She never did. She never had anything to do with uh, Typo. Hmm. No, that was uh, Ken Creedy. Ken yeah. Creedy managing the band. Yeah. Right from the get-go? We had a few people interested. Chris Williamson was interested i remember um meeting with him at uh the ritz in manhattan i have some memories you know and i remember going downstairs into the basement of of the ritz to talk to him hitting my head on one of the pipes and uh they had like on video there was a band playing on video while, we, while he was well we were interviewing him i guess you know mm. and years later you know thinking about the mohawk and everything it was Pantera on stage. <laughs> I mean, I would years later meet them, but, you know, just going back and thinking about it, that's who was on stage that night. Yeah. It was Philip I was looking at. Funny, but I don't know why we ended up not going with Chris Williamson. I don't remember, but there was a number of people up on board and we ended up picking Ken. It's interesting how there was a process, and in like an interview process, and people were lining up for it. That's not really... In- in my experience, that's not generally how it, it happens. And you must have been fucking hot shit back on the scene in those days. Well, I think what happened was we started playing some local shows and, you know, some of the residual carnival fans, of course, came down. And we started building a word of mouth following. We put out, um, we put out a cassette under repulsion, yeah. right? Different name. And we started getting a local buzz. Yes. So. When that happens, you know, the local managers are all over it. You know? So we had, we had a number of uh, interviews. I don't remember who else, but that's, that's who I remember. I remember Chris Williamson. Yeah. And uh, I don't remember why we ended up going with Ken, but it was the right choice, definitely, at the time. Ken was a brilliant manager. He was the right choice. What's the, um, the, the, what's the, the cycle around Slow, Deep, and Hard like? Is it press, tour, back in the studio? No, no, there wasn't really a, there wasn't really much of a cycle. There was a, a brief tour. It was a disaster. <laughs> a disaster. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, what didn't go wrong? Everything. After 
months and months of talking Peter to go on the road. We got him to go on the road in the worst disaster tour on earth. I'm surprised he ever got a tour bus ever again. <laughs> he lasted two weeks. He lasted two weeks and he flew home from Europe. Yeah. Oh, oh, really? Two weeks in the States. Oh, yeah, that was the first one. That was with Exploited. Yeah, with Exploited, yeah. Yeah. I loved it. I had a great time. <laughs> He's the only one that had fun. What was the breaking point? Oh, Kansas. He clicked his heels and transported back home. I knew it was over when I walked into the parking lot of the hotel and he was sitting on the trailer roof, reading a book in fetal position. An <laughs> uh, in Indian, sitting Indian style, reading a book on top of the fucking, on the roof of the fucking trailer. I was like, oh, that's it. He snapped. Oh, and then it was one point where I was talking to my boy, Sean, in the, um, in the restaurant, in the hotel. And I heard this echo through the hotel. <laughs> and it was clearly Peter. There was only one person who sounds like that. <laughs> So, you know, now, mind you, like, you know, like I said, you know, we've been friends since before typo and I was friends with the band as well. And the, the, the guy, Sean, that he's uh, referencing to worked for the band. Right. who's was another friend of ours. Yeah. And um, I, I remember I was, I was out at a club and then I ran into Sean and I was like, what are you doing here? <laughs> He's like, that's it. We got home today. <laughs> I guess I like, what happened? He's, that was it. Peter had enough. It didn't happen man, in that tour. And then there was, a, there was a brief tour to go to Europe for a couple of weeks. That was even more of a disaster. Which is pretty well documented, you know, like if you're, you know, a typo fan, you know. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, how many shows did you get to play on your two-week tour? One, three? Two, two or three, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was our fault, though. The States was the exploited's fault. I mean, look, they were out of control. Um, crazy. I mean, at one point, they, uh, they, were, they kept canceling shows because they couldn't make the shows. At one point, they were stun-gunning their driver <laughs> while he was driving, and he quit. Gee, I wonder why. <laughs> And then they uh, they hired some drunken guy in the audience to drive the van that night. I remember, and I went, I drove with them. <laughs> and then uh, I think that night they tortured him all night, and uh, we had like a, a big water fight at the hotel. I remember the water running down the steps of the hotel. Kept him up all night, and then he almost crashed and went off the road the next day. So we missed like I don't know four or five, six shows from them, and of course we were losing money, and we were bleeding money. And Peter and Josh were freaking out about these guys are ruining the whole tour. Meanwhile, you know, they were the tour, they were the headliner. So, and then Peter, you know, he just couldn't, he had to have a hotel every night. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was always going to sit, sleep. Uh, he was going to sleep sitting up in a van. He's six foot six, you know. Oh, and then uh, I remember one night, which is really another breaking point, where nobody had anticipated Canada Day in Canada. All the hotels were booked. Right. Like everywhere, everywhere in Canada. And we, I remember driving down at one in the morning for a hotel. I'm fucking going home, slamming on the dashboard, you know, two in the morning. So it just, that's how the whole tour went. And finally, I, I think at that point, I just, 
I jumped out of the typo van and I just I rode with the exploited. For the rest of the nearly got I, yourself killed. I got drunk with them, yeah, and I had a great time with them. Well, you know, they imploded. They imploded in the typo van. They contemplated. They planned my death, probably. <laughs> we're gonna go home. Then we're gonna kill him. <laughs> so then they went home, and then there was one show left. The last show of the tour with with the the, the Chromax, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Played him in LA. So then I, I went with the band. We drove cross country in the van to do one show. Fucking hell. We flew Peter. Peter flew. Peter flew. Oh, we, okay. We flew Peter, and then the rest of us, we drove in a van cross country. How Probably one of the best times I've ever had in my life. We had a great time. <laughs> you know, was I wasn't just... even in the band, but it was one of the best times ever. We never left so, so hard. <laughs> How long did that take? Two weeks. Fucking hell. <laughs> For one show. One show, yeah. It was great. We had a great time. The van, like, like it was like around Halloween and we were trying to get to LA for Halloween. Right. Never made it. <laughs> we broke down in Barstow, yeah. California. We did Halloween in Barstow. <laughs> Completely different experience. No, Halloween town is <laughs> Barstow. Not much of a Halloween town. Not much of a town, period. <laughs> it's basically a, a you know just an oversized truck stop. Wow. And we were stuck. We were stuck there for like three days. <laughs> so after you'd played Rockstar for the for the for what we're going to refer to as a cycle, because there aren't there aren't any better words. How did that change the mood? Was it still low stakes, or was it? Did it feel like a false start? Uh it was low stakes. Low. Like feeling low about the whole thing. Right. You know, coming home from Europe, not only exhausted and my liver descended, but just like a total loser. I mean, uh, most of the tour got canceled. We never finished even half of the American tour. I mean, you wait your whole life to go out on the road. Yeah, we're on the road. <laughs> like everything goes completely wrong. You know, uh, I was real. Peter said, That's it. I'm never going on the road again. Yeah. I'm going to be in the span fine. I'll play some local shows. That's it. We'll make records. So that's what we were uh, convinced. We're going to do like what the Beatles did. Yeah, except, you know, the Beatles were popular when they did it. Right. But that that that's really what he wanted to do. He didn't really want to tour. It wasn't, you know, he wanted to be home and he wanted, he wanted to, you know, be creative and he wanted to, you know, make records and, you know, continue to make music, but he had no desire to, you know, live on a bus so what how does origin of the feces happen then because i remember re, I could, this could be bollocks it could be another felt, fake roadrunner story but was it those guys who wanted a live album and this was kind of a jab at that or was it always uh, by design a fake live album i don't remember it that way i mean if i had josh to refer to he'd probably be useless because he doesn't remember shit either um, but I remember it as being a brainchild of Peter as just like, you know, what if we made a live album? Because of everything that happened to us in Europe and stuff, it was a desire to tell the story, you know. Mm -hmm. But what if we made a live album, but it wasn't really live? And we had a canned audience and they were saying, saying you suck, you suck. Because, you know, just to reflect on everything that went down in Europe and stuff. We had a lot of the you suck stuff going on opening up for the Exploited, by the way. Because, you know, when you open up for a hardcore punk band, or two hardcore bands, and you're playing one note per minute. 
you know, people don't catch on to it very easy. It was a rough tour for us, you know. So it was more of a desire to tell that whole story of, of you know, those two disaster tours. Right. And, um, you know, that's how it came about. So we really wanted to do the, the live record. Really? You really, you were the ones who wanted to do it. I mean, nobody calls for a live record after doing one, you know, one LP. Nobody does, right? So it was, it was a brainchild of Peter's. It was, it was, it was. Uh, we thought a funny idea and a, and a great way to tell the story of all the crap that happened to us. Yeah. No, for, for, the, for the half a dozen shows that the band actually played, there was a little bit of notoriety to it. And I think part of it also was designed to like to try to capitalize on that notoriety. Yeah. Yeah. It make it makes sense and it's packaged beautifully just as an homage to that, you know, the bomb <laughs> the bomb threats and the fucking there's a few things about that record which are very unique. One of the things which I want to touch on is the fact that you got a producer for it. You never had a producer. Who's PT Burnham? PT Barnum, Barnum and Bailey Circus. That's a joke. <laughs> it's a joke. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you fucking got me, didn't you? <laughs> All these years later. Well, <laughs> circuses are out of fashion. But that's 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 what it was. It was a reference to that. It was, it was all done. It was all done in house, like everything. How do you get away with that then? Because surely, you know, the monsters of the world will be saying, "Come on, lads, you need to you need a, someone with an objective mindset to to help steer this project." And you guys, they, just like, fuck off. They no. did not anticipate going up against Josh Silva, and when Josh is determined and he wants something. He gets it. He fought against him, tooth and nail. And then Peter also supported him because Peter didn't want some producer coming in and trying to make artistic decisions. You know, mm. he couldn't have that. He would strangle the guy. Right. You know, or you know, start seeing his vision, you know. Yeah. So you know, him and Josh worked off each other well. And I think Josh he wanted to produce and an engineer. Well, you want to produce more than engineer. So that that was his his goal. Josh's goal was never to be like this big rock star up on stage or anything like that. He even played it. He hated playing live too. He loved he liked playing music, but he wanted to produce. That was his thing. Right. Interesting. Interesting. So you say you had to talk to them. You well every album, every album they try to dump a producer on us, and every album was a, a huge war. Wow. Fucking hell! After bloody kisses broke, after when bloody you know kisses even bloody out, kisses they tried, they tried. But after that, when when bloody kisses went gold, they kind of eased back on yeah. production with the October Rust. Yeah, but then I think after that, then they wanted to go to have a producer yeah, 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 that yeah. as well. <laughs> well, it's you know it's the record industry formula. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, this guy's got a lot of hits. This producer, let's put him with this band, and they'll have a lot of hits. Yeah. Which is, of course, never the truth. That's not how it works. It's 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 a combination. I think they suggested, like you know, like if we could get George Martin to produce, then they would consider it as something. Right. You said that um, you try and convince Peter in the earlier days. Who would you have had if you could have done? Um, Apart from George Martin, <laughs> Bob Ezrin. Yes. Rick Rubin. No fair dues. Fair dues. Well, I think. Um, 
that the the print that uh, Josh puts on it is obviously part of the the staple. That is really part of that staple sound. And there's a few sort of production hallmarks I wanted to touch on. And there's some sounds which I really like. So, for example, on Bloody Kisses, and this is a horrible example because my throat's fucked, but sometimes it sounds like Peter's got the mic right. You can, like you can hear every click and every the movement. Yeah, I was always, uh, always a production technique. Yeah, with yeah. his voice. Why? And when I when I look live as well, when I look at the live shows, Peter's always using a fifty-seven, which is over there. It was that because yeah. he could move straight into the diaphragm and recreate those. Oh, I don't think he. I don't think he had made any conscious thought about what he was doing with a mic on stage. He just screamed into it. You know, I think Josh. He did like the nuances of breathiness and all that stuff. So, you know, Josh brought that out with having him up close to the mic and hyper-compressing his voice to pick up all that stuff. Yeah. It was part of the mood. Yeah, was Pete, part of it. Having not seen him in person, was Peter a loud guy just like by his, his natural yeah. sort of timbre? He was a fucking big mouth from Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, he was loud, Yeah. I was just thinking of it from like a soundies perspective. Like if you're trying to capture all that in the in the mic on the stage while all this shit is going on, you want to gotta be a loud guy. And secondly, you gotta compress the shit out of it because to get from to shouting it's gotta be without killing anyone is 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 a is an art form and it's by design. It certainly isn't like a wing it sort of job. We we were uh not favorites of uh Front of house engineers. Okay. Yeah. Tell me, tell me everything. We're always louder than the PA, no matter yeah. where we played. You know, like every sound engineer was always yelling at the band to lower down. Like, oh, okay, okay, okay. And then Peter would walk on stage, you know, the opening note, and he would put on his bass and just go to his rig and just turn everything up. And it was like, sound check was a total waste of time. So then he would turn up. Then Josh would turn up because he couldn't hear himself. All he heard was Peter. Then Kenny would turn up because he couldn't hear himself. And then it just became this wall. We were, of- we were louder than most PAs. The only time we were, weren't louder than PAs is when we were playing amphitheaters and, and, and arenas and, and huge festivals. It's the only time. Every club or theater even we played, we were, fuck, we were usually louder than what the sound engineer had to get over us on a PA. I mean, most of the time, most of our sound engineers had the band off. And just the vocals, Peter's vocal <laughs> in the PA. So you know, we're mixing disaster. You're a your live sound guy, so you could you could understand what I'm saying. I would use the word empathize, but yes. <laughs> we've got we've been yelled at by the best of them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I've lost significant amount of my hearing because of it. No, I said Peter never lost his hearing because his head, he was so tall, his head was above the amps. <laughs> it was right in my face and the uh, no exaggeration you know if if we were to play a big music hall or a theater or an arena with a hundred thousand people he was the same volume in a 10 by 10 room for rehearsal exactly the same volume consistent <laughs> so as if you know and josh like you know for his keyboards and stuff the guy had he had a fucking pa yeah, he literally had a PA. Sounded great, amazing, but it was so fucking loud. His helicopter sound was so, I mean, you felt it in your liver, was like shaking. And then he would play facing me. You know, we would be on stage together and he was facing this way, and his PA bins 
were faced at my my head. And he would do hit those helicopter samples and stuff. My eyes would roll in the back of my head and I'd forget where I was and stuff. It was just, it was so ungodly loud. Did you start using in-ears towards the end or even no, now? No, I, I wish I did. I play with them now. I've been using them for like, like almost like 10 years. And I was, I wish that I had done that then. I wish we all would have. It would have, it would have changed everything. I don't know if it would have changed for the better, but it would have changed everything. <laughs> I don't Peter with in-ears. <laughs> I can't see it personally. <laughs> he blew his nose so much while he was singing. It probably flew out of his ears. So we're moving on to, um, to, to Bloody Kisses. What's quite impressive is, is the album cycles themselves. It's one year. It's quite quick. Was that always part of the, the was that always how productive you guys were? Just like fucking oh. smash it out. Not after that. Yeah, I don't think we're that October Rust came together. That was actually, you know, like looking back, that was fast too, because mm. we were only home. We were only home for about six months. And that record was written, demoed, and recorded. And six months later, we were back out on the road. That was the mm. only quick record we ever did. Yeah. I, in, in the earlier days, like with Slow Deep and Hard and with Bloody Kisses, the only thing that made us at all fast was the cost of recording. You know, we had to get it done and, you know, it's $8 a minute, ah, you know, yeah, we're on a budget and all that shit. But um, I don't think we were at all, like, we, we weren't focused on getting Bloody Kisses out quick. You know, it just no. sort of like fell off the shelf, you know. I mean, right. we were never going to tour for it. Then we were going to tour for it. Then, you know, Sal left the band. Then we were not going to tour for it again. And the, the record was out almost a year before we even got on the road to support it. Wow. Well, it's an interesting story, as Bloody Kisses, and it's quite central to the Roadrunner canon because it's the first gold. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I want to ask that that campaign was like a, a design thing. It was Doug Keogh, it was Jim Salaby, it was, it was Case sitting down and going, Here's our roster of acts in this now post Nirvana world, or sort of during Nirvana world. Who's going to give yeah, us the post. gold? Yeah. yeah, it was post certainly post Nevermind when it all blown up. I don't, I don't know if it actually happened that way. Well, mm. it was more like Peter didn't want to go on the road. Um, the label saw something in us to break them past. Just you know throw away thrash metal bands, which is basically they had a roster up. Like to maybe put the label on a map. And um, they needed to convince Peter as well to go on the road. So that's just how the whole case commitment thing came in. Mm. It was He was really like uh, pressured by Peter because Peter was like, I ain't going on the road, you know, I'm never going to do this. And then it, it got to the point where if I'm going to do this, then I need a total commitment from Roadrunner, you know to make this happen. Cause you know, Peter saw it as, you know, he's risking his job yeah. for, you know, he's gambling it away on this band. Yeah. So he, that's how we ended up getting the commitment out of case to get behind the band hundred percent. So that's kind of how, how it really went down. Right. It was, I'm not going on the road. Fuck this. And then rolling on and realizing we'd never go anywhere unless we toured. Uh, deciding to, to put the band ahead of all their other bands and try to do something with it. Yeah. And convince Peter that they were going to do that. And so he would get on the bus. 
did this. It was part of the reason. I'm sorry. It was part of the reason why he did. Yeah. Part of it. I'm going to say, did that change your relationship with the label <clears throat> at this point? Because now you were getting the priority calls and you were, you know, Mark Abramson's on the phone with every fucking radio station for about two years. We loved Mark. You know, Mark came, hung out with the band. I mean, we loved a lot of the people that worked, you know, and a daily basis did the labor for the band and stuff. I think uh, yeah. a lot of the percentage. Some relationships were definitely contentious. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. You know, like as, um, as, the record was getting, you know, slow. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't something that just happened, like, you know, like, you know, a couple of months, you no know, way. a few weeks on the road and then it was successful. It wasn't like that. And it took a lot of hard work and it took, it took a lot of hard work from everybody. And it was, you know, as the band, as the record was starting to get more and more successful, we were trying to get more out of them. And they like you know basically they would they didn't want to do that like you know like if you want to keep us out on the road this is you know this is what we need and they you know they were they were having issues with it mm. and then it got close and then they were like all right whatever it takes to you know make this record gold and they, they did give us money for gear didn't they i remember that it's, we could we took an advance yeah well they didn't give us anything you know it's all an advance borrowed money <laughs> yeah it's, <laughs> all, it's a loan isn't okay. it I just remember the whole feeling of being, it's just, you know, ass in the wind, hope in the prayer out there, you know. Um, I had really nothing to fucking lose, you know. I had mm -hmm. a couple of trades, and I wasn't, like, strapped down any friggin' job. Josh gave up his studio business, which was actually doing well. And Peter gave up whatever, his lifelong dream job of the parks department. Which was very important to him, that job. That job, he loved that job. You know, on the road, when he, when, he, when he felt insecure or when, you know, he was pissed off, he'd pick up a broom and start sweeping his floor wherever he was. <laughs> True he story. <laughs> he did. He did. So, you know, it was like a hope and a prayer and uh, asking to win. Here we are and, you know, giving it a shot. One last shot. It was like a one. It was always a one last shot. Every day we woke up. Yeah. One last shot at this. That's a keep, keep going, boys. We can make you yeah. on this. Definitely. Well, every time a tour ended, we thought for sure that was it. Yeah, every time. That's it, you know. And then, you know, it's like, all right, you know, time to go back to work, you know. Party's over. <laughs> and then the phone would ring and we'd get another another offer, another opportunity would come up and be like, all right, you're going back out. It was almost like we could not destroy it. We tried really hard to wreck it. <laughs> In every way, we did every dumb thing you could possibly do, and it would not go away. How did the Motley Crew think come about then? This is quite they pivotal. The they, they liked, liked the band. band. Nikki liked the band. They, they, were, they were doing their record with Karabi. They were in the studio, and I guess Nikki picked up on the band. He, he found out he got the album from somebody, and they started playing it in the studio while they were working on their music. Mm. That, that's it. What do you make of Karabi era Motley Crew? Uh, I think Robbie's got a great voice, you know. I think it's I, underrated that, that, that. I think that he made them be, be a band. I think that at the time, you know, that I mean, they were changing singers in the worst possible time a glam metal band would uh, could ever do, which is in the middle of grunge. Hmm. You know, it was hard enough to get a gig as a hair band, right? And um, I think they were having a hard time with that record. People were not showing up to the shows. Yeah. 
and they blamed it on Karabi. And I don't think it was his fault. I think it was a really good singer. I think yeah. he got kind of like beat on over it. I feel bad for him. Yeah. The record, I think, is one of the one of the best records. Uh, you know, uh, it may have been something. Maybe they should have like you know done something like you know called it something else than Motley Crue. You know, like the, you yeah. Know, yeah, they were at a certain like you know point in their success before that record came out and a lot had changed in music over those, over those last, like, you know, four years, whatever. Mm, yeah. they, they thought that they could come out, you know, come back, you know, in, in that same, at that same level. Yeah. And the world, just, around, the world around victims. changed. There were more victims of the grunge, you know, era. I know. But the record, it was a solid record. Karabi sang great, you know, and the band, well, that, he, you know, the problems with Karabi were not singing his parts live. He had a hard time hitting those high notes that Vince Neil, and those are friggin' some, you know, dog notes that Vince Neil hits and stuff. I remember him having some hard times with that and them beating on him about it. And I definitely felt bad for him. But a lot, yeah. I thought it was a great tour. We had a, we had a, we had for a, us, for us, it was great. <laughs> you know, for us, it was, it was, very good because like you know like what was really a bad night for them was like you know whatever two thousand people you know three thousand people you know typo negative isn't going to play in front of three thousand people in you know charlotte you we know. were lucky to play in front of 50 people before that show <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't want to do it i didn't want to go and ken creeder was like yeah ken i'm like get out of here open up for my <laughs> They're going to freaking boo us off the stage. Nobody's going to buy a freaking typo record in Motley Crue show. Man, were we wrong. He was he was, I remember right. Ken telling me, I was, like, I was like, Ken, I was like, you know, I'm a funny guy. I like to laugh. I was like, this isn't funny. <laughs> He's Daddy's a total Motley Crue fan. I love Motley Crue. Fan. I love Motley Crue too, but. I was, like, I was like, this has bad written all over it. Why would, why would we go out with Motley Crue? <laughs> And, he, and I just remember Ken, just like, he's like, trust me. He's like, this will be a really good thing for you guys. And he was he right. Said you'll be, he said, you'll be paying in front of 3,000 people a night that would never, ever think of listening to you or buying your record. You're exposing yourself to. Whatever. And we agreed to go. And he was right. That's what he started. Right. That's, what, you know, and that's, that's what broke the band. Uh, during that tour, that's, that's when, like, some radio stations were starting to pick up on what the, you know, pick up on typo negative and we were starting to starting to like, you know, get noticed a little bit. And that was a solid year after that record came out. Mm. Yeah. It's mad, isn't it? Yeah. It's fucking mental. How does Roadrunner celebrate the gold then? Cause this is their first gold, which is a massive fucking deal, especially because case has been in the industry at this point. This is 90, 95 when the gold's awarded. He's yeah. been in the industry at least 30 years. Yeah, he was, uh, at that point, it was, um, like I had said earlier, it got to a point, it was getting really close. And uh, they were, uh, Case was just, Case was committed. He was like, you know, whatever it takes. And I think at that, I remember hearing something, they, somebody had told me that at one point, they were spending like $6 a record to promote it. And right. then it was still, it was, it was like, it, it was getting close and it just wasn't, it wasn't getting over that hump to, you know, get certified. And then somebody suggested like, you know, checking out the um, mail order sales. Right. Like Columbia okay. House. I don't know if you're familiar with Columbia House, like back then, you, know, you buy 10 records for a penny. 
<laughs> right. Okay. And then they, right. they, they did, clearly they did, before they, his time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I know you look pretty young, but it's like, I turned thirty-two on Sunday. <laughs> yeah. So you could do that. You'd buy like a bunch of records, then you'd have to subscribe, and then you'd have to buy records, X amount of records per year, whatever it was. Right. Yeah, at full price. Hmm. And so then they did the accounting for the mail order on the record. And that was that was enough. It had sold enough records there where it got over the hump to be certified gold. Wow. And then Case said that, um, I remember Case was saying, you know, if the record goes gold, we'll have a big party in Amsterdam, you know, whatever, blah, blah, blah. So then the record went gold and I asked him about the party. <laughs> if they had a party in Amsterdam, Peter and Josh refused to go. <laughs> so we went. Yeah, me and, me and Johnny, we took, we took our wives. Yeah. Great time. I had a blast. I know the... Um... We were there for like four days. We had to go to one party. <laughs> yeah, that one party lasted four days. Yeah. I know it, along with you guys, there was the Sony Red guys. It was it was a party kind of more for them because as distributors, they were the ones. Right. They're, right. They're, you know, they're, uh, you know, they're doing the grunt work also, you know, like they're. Yeah, they, they they revere that party as like they revere that trip as like that's the, the greatest thing in the history of this fucking company and all this stuff. <laughs> so I've been trying to like I, mean, I always ask when I speak to Roadrunner people like did you go to the 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 uh, um, the celebration for Bloody Kisses are like yes and that's the end of it they don't remember anything else. <laughs> that's about that sounds pretty accurate. <laughs> yeah, one more Bloody Kisses. Um, Production s question. So one thing, another one of those trademark sounds is the oohs and the ahs. I kind of describe it as like it's like a full ACDC chorus, like condensed into one syllable. Ooh, that. Yeah, yeah. It's kind of it's it's Celtic way more, Sorry, Celtic Frost. Celtic is, Frost. Is that the is that where it's all coming from? Tom G Warrior. That's who we're and trying. Tom's to Quinn. Yeah, <laughs> 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 Tommy Quinn. <laughs> Peter's a huge fan too. Peter love. Yeah. Times you worry in Celtic for us. We all were fans. So yeah, that's that's what that came from. And we always we always thought it, it was a funny, it sounded funny too. The, ooh, uh. <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm, I know you're fucking someone else with the who are all that stuff. And it it's <laughs> layered in a way that it becomes really percussive. Cause there are some songs where it happens where it just seems like, oh, we're just saying the things. But then when you get to bloody kisses, it it's like a you could you could have a floor tom or you could have an ooh. <laughs> yeah. and it, that remained throughout our recording history after that I mean, it's on every record somewhere. yeah it's just fucking fun it's fucking fun <clears throat> what brought about the breakdown in Kill All The White People you use the manual of arms I had to track this down because I've heard that a number of times a well, number of times he loved military industrial sound he liked he loved military so he loved Leibach Leibach was one of his favorite bands of all time so he looked right. like Fusing military with uh, social politics and you know juxtaposition, everything you know. And sometimes it pissed people off, but I think that he liked that. Yeah, yeah. That. yeah it's, it's just so. the sample itself. It was just like I'm sure to fucking god I've heard this before, and I kept googling, googling. And I found it in isolation, and I think it's just like it's literally just um, um, an audio manual of someone running drills. Or something like that with a bunch yeah. of lads in the sixties. It's just fucking great. <laughs> and all that kind of stuff really uh 
really played to Peter's liking. You know, he, he was OCD. So, you know, the idea of two equal columns of men marching to the same exact beat, you know, is really turned them on and shit like that. And not that turned them on in a gay way, but, you know, in, in a... <laughs> <laughs> buried myself here. You know, he loved that kind of uniformity, you know. We've been buried Sonically, since visually, you know, so he always liked throwing military stuff in. Yeah, yeah. I say, we've been buried since that breaking barriers synopsis of <laughs> what 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 kind of what yeah. kind of warriors and what typo is. <laughs> it's over. <laughs> so the story arc at this point is is very low stakes, just guys kind of, everyone's got different investments in the band, but Bloody Kisses is like the first goal is it creates the viable business out of, you know, your alcohol sponsors because I know there wasn't a lot of money in it. <clears throat> How's, does this fuck your expectations up now? Now that you're getting the support, now that you're getting on the road and Pete's like, yeah, let's just fucking go and he's quit his it's job. Just, it put us under more pressure, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, talking about before he quit his job or after he quit. I mean, after did it fuck with your expectations completely? Did you think, like, I know it's been reported that um, the expectation for October Rust was what five, seven million? Did you think you were going to hit that, or were you like, that's what the label was expecting? Yeah, yeah. We we uh, we were hoping that we could just like do what we did on the last record. Right. Cool. Yeah. So you you were you were still in sort of the same mindset of yeah we'll just keep churning out what we can churn out. There's no no one's thinking even oh next time we'll go platinum. Even though that the band was still more successful, like you know, like the this perspective of the band wasn't you know it was like that really hadn't changed much. Yeah. There, you know, we were still on the mindset that this is all going to implode. You know, a month from now. <laughs> it's always like that, you know, right up till it finally did. Yeah, like you know, there was never nobody ever really thought long term, mm. and if they did, they didn't. They weren't very vocal about it. Well, that kind of just speaks to how unique typo is as a sound, anyway, because it doesn't fit anywhere, compl- like strictly in any particular box, it and it's did. probably exactly, and it probably never did because you never had a long term like strategic not strategic but long-term think about how where it could go and what it could do it's probably because you had the metabolism of just going let's just see if we can push this see if we can get our foot out the door then put the next foot onto the path and then well, i mean other it. things other things had gotten in the way yeah you know later on where it was you know like it, we were working against ourselves more than like you know moving ahead but we were always good at that Right from the beginning, I mean, I just told the story the first talk. We were always working against ourselves, and that 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 continued up until up until the end. You know, I mean, you know, then there was like other things that had gotten in the way. You know, like gotten, you know, like a, you know, like you know, it's well You know, like with the with the drugs and the alcohol and stuff like that, and to mm. you know be creative and stuff. Now it was like it was very it was very laborious. Yeah, you know, I mean. Uh, you know, it was just, it was tough in other ways as opposed to like, you know, like every record always took a piece of you with it. Oh, yeah. I think every band could say that. Yeah. And, you know, like there was always a, like the desire to be creative, but then there was always, there was always something else that, that, you know, got in the way where it was like, you know, the last thing you wanted to do was be creative. You wanted, <laughs> you wanted to run. <laughs> 
But, you know, in, in all good spirits, that whole period we're talking about right now, which is from the first record to the Bloody Kisses campaign, that, that was really the fun part. That was the golden age of the band. That's when we were having fun. You know, I yeah. get it. It was tragic moments, of course, but it was the... Was the that it was, was nothing really, to lose then. We're naive, yeah. It was nothing to lose and... and uh, there was, was no right. expectations, nothing to lose. It was... oh, we did. We had our expectation was after this tour, this band is over. Every time. <laughs> it was true though. That was it. By <laughs> somebody was fucked up on drugs. This happened. That happened. There was always something, you know. So we were always waiting to die, you know, for the band to die. And we just figured, you know, hey, we're here now. Let's have a good time. Have the last ten years change your perspective on? those first three albums in terms of you going out with different outfits there's silver tomb there's, there's a number of gigs that have happened in the last 10 years as different working styles different environments you've been in has it made you think differently about those days and about how not necessarily regrets not necessarily well i, uh, try, I try i try to learn from some of that stuff you know i yeah. try to i try to use that experience you know to you know, like make, you know, whatever smarter decisions or, you know, like, or, you know, stuff like that. Or, but, it, mm -hmm. you know, from a, you know, from where I'm sitting, like, you know, like, like Kenny said, you know, that was the, that was the golden age. That's when it was, you know, a, really a lot of fun. Yeah. It and, was easy to be on a disaster. Yeah. Now it's so funny anymore, you know, <laughs> being 50 or whatever in a van. Yeah. Is not as funny as being 23 in a van. <laughs> <laughs> but regardless, though, when I do, I, I do, it's my nature as a human being to think back on those days and think back on them finally. I, I tend to erase all the hardship and all the misery that was between it all. You know, I, or it has more of a com comedic outlook for me now. But back then, it was very real. A lot of, the harsh moments that we endured, you know, yeah, like freezing in a bus in January with no heat, you know, in Austria, and the steam is coming out of your uh, breath while you're laying in your bunk. You know what I mean? Uh, I mean, it was crazy. Mm. You know, some of the shit we went through, but a lot yeah. of a lot of it was funny. You know, there's a lot yeah. of a lot of funny shit happened over over those years. And that, you know, like not only were you like, you know, like it, it wound up like you know benefiting us, you know, career wise, but there were a lot of funny memories about it. And that's the yeah. stuff that you talk about. Like, you know, nobody talk. You, you never sit us in a room and talk about like, you know, like a. Oh, remember when you know, like you know, the bloody kisses went gold, or like there's none of that. It's always you remembering like all the the funny shit that happened during those times, and that that's what you look back on, and it just mm. happened to be. You know, during that time, you're also like, you know, making it, you know, making a career for yourself. Yeah. You know, despite your best effort to ruin it, you were still making a career out of it. <laughs> so I'm going to leave the discography behind. Um, I want to go into slightly, not necessarily weirder territory, but to Johnny, um, so you joined the band on the, the Bloody Kisses cycle, but you first a named member on October Rust onwards. Yeah. Um, you guys leave Roadrunner in 2005 and Dead Again comes out in SPV. Wow, so is it 2005? <laughs> we so, shit. <laughs> I think it was, wasn't it? I think it was. Either, either way, my point yeah, being, that, that sounds right. Yeah. <laughs> you 
program drums during your tenure there. So technically, the only Roadrunner album you performed on was the Roadrunner United project. Not necessarily true. I, I, I played on the Paranoid track. On oh, okay. Of, uh, of uh, Origin. And then we, well, it wasn't on Roadrunner, right? That wasn't the Black Sabbath record or Nativity. Yeah, Black, the Black Sabbath record, yeah. That, that wasn't on Roadrunner. No. But uh, not like uh, in hindsight, it, you know, like it, it was uh, probably, I probably would have less gray hair had I played on the records instead of doing what we did. Why did you do it in the first place? Is it just because it, I think it was, a control, it was a control thing to have more right. control of what was going on. Mm. You know, like we could, you know, like if, if something didn't feel right, we weren't married to it. You can go in and change it. You can modify drum patterns and stuff like that. Even after these guys had had done their tracks and stuff, and uh, you know, like it, it was a useful tool that way to explore the uh, you know possibilities with the songs and stuff. Cheaper, you know, like even even now, I'm still, even now, I still do stuff like that. I still, I still work that way. I didn't know they were programmed until I read it like a week ago. So, yeah, I play. I I did everything electronically. Yeah, it wasn't like you know, like where it was just a you know a sampler, and you just go in and you know you just start hitting pushing you know, buttons. It wasn't pushing buttons. Say here, like all right, use this loop, use that loop. It wasn't like that. It was I touched every single note on those records. Yeah, yeah. I wasn't giving you shit for it. I think it, I think it makes sense, yeah. but. Well, I, you know, like it, it has it has its advantages and its disadvantages. You know, like a. You know, like some of the stuff doesn't come across the same way that it does as a live drummer. Like there are certain things missing from it. But I, I think that, you know, like, you know, at the time, you know, I think the benefits outweighed, you know, the takeaways from it. I yeah. Just got, you said no worries. Okay. It's just as well, because Johnny, I wanted to ask you about Rodney United, because Blood and Flames is probably one of my favorites. I don't know what it is about it. It's just like, it's a, beast of a track and i think it's when it kicks out of the intro and into that so i just want to ask you what what was your feeling that when you were engaged for the project like that presumably monty rang you up and went right we're gonna shill for our own company here and celebrate our own yeah i mean i thought i thought the idea i thought it was pretty clever what they had done like you know like the whole approach to the record and like you know having teams and stuff like that i would have my initial thing was i i thought that they didn't uh they should have utilized peter more on that record mm-hmm. you know given just given you know just how talented he is you know <clears throat> you yeah. know i'm sure he could have come up with some stuff that was like you know like really unique like like the song that he wound up singing on uh but at the time, so, so they, like, you know, they approached me and they, they, they were, uh, you know, they were like, you know, you know, they told me what they were doing. They were like, you know, would you want to do it? I was like, yeah, it's like, sounds, sounds like a lot of fun. And, and, uh, so they, whatever, you know, like they took care of all the logistics and things like that, but I didn't have any music. Mm-hmm. I got, I remember getting, literally getting a rough track, a rough guitar track of the song Two right. days before I was to fly out there. We can see your pants shit then. 
Yeah. So, you know, I didn't really have a chance to like really work on, on the song until I got in the studio that day. We only had literally one day to work on the song and get the drum track on it and stuff. And, Mm. and they were filming video that day. So there was like, you know, you were doing interviews as well as like, you know, like where you're trying to work and then you're also trying to be creative you know, where you're trying to come up with something, you know, cool, you know, you, you want to do, you know, I wanted to do the best thing that I could for the song. Yeah. And, uh, and I, you know, like it, it turned out okay. You know, I dig it. You know, I, I was, I was happy with the end result, but like, you know, like the, the road getting there, which was like pretty typical for anything, you know, that, that we would always do anything that, that we do. There's always, you know, all these like, you know, bumps in the road and, you know, shit like that. So you weren't, you know, it was like par for the course, so to speak, but it was, you know, it was, it was nerve wracking to say the least. If they'd planned it out months in advance for you, it wouldn't have been very typo negative, would it? You know? No, actually it was planned out pretty well in advance. They just didn't get me the music to work on. <laughs> <laughs> I knew I was doing it. Yeah. <laughs> I just didn't know what I was doing. Yeah, Josh Josh is on the record a couple of times as well. He, one of the, my favorite ones is um Rhodes, which is just him and um Michael, right? From, Michael uh, from Pepper. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's really good that one, but yeah, it's, it's it's a very ambitious project, but the the initial reactions to it have got, like go from left to right. It's like, oh, this is an amazing idea to why would you celebrate your own company? It's such a it's just a strange it's a strange thing. <laughs> but um, well, it worked, man. Like, you know, a lot of people do that though. You know, like they they have you know whatever the, the Oscars every year to celebrate themselves. You know, it's, just you know, their own asses, right? Yeah, look at just our asses. Yeah. Yeah. Look at us, we're great. really like you know like for us you know like as a band we were never ever like that never no never. too much self-deprecation uh, isn't it depreciation no, there was never way. you never got a fucking pat on the back where it was like oh good job you know that was oh. that was great never <laughs> always be better yeah. If sure. you did, it would have it probably might have fucked you up, man. Probably, you know. Well, maybe I would have been happier. I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't have sank so low into alcoholism. <laughs> I'm all better now, though. <laughs> well, I mean, we'll, we'll never know, but <laughs> but it really, it really was not that environment. You're like, you know, you never walked off stage going, "Wow, that was a great show." Oh, yes, we have. Come on. But in a while, once yeah. in a blue moon, it'd be like. Wow, that was pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. We have, we have, we've had, even Peter's enjoyed some of the shows, believe it or not. Yeah. Hot, slight, slight hot topic then, right? Regards, and it's another Roadrunner question. Okay. Given given that arc around Bloody Kisses and, and trying to create the viability around that particular record, do you think any other label could have done it at that time? Any, any label could have given you that support or knew what to do with it? No. I, 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 if there is one, I don't, I don't know of them. I mean, they were sort of this underdog in the midst of grunge, you know. Especially so, back then. Yeah. You know, had we been, you know, had we been with, like, you know, whatever another label or something like that, we probably wouldn't have gotten the attention that we did, or you know, the support, or you know, it was, 
Everybody you know, was riding the grunge wave, you know. So and we, we were we weren't a part of that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we needed an underdog like them that was hungry. I think, and maybe there and wasn't we, a. Group we, we, and then it became we became the big fish in the small pond. Yeah. Yeah. And that that wouldn't have that wouldn't have been able to have been applied. Say we had been with a bigger label or something like that. Yeah, it was funny, but the whole grunge thing is that like we weren't a part of that, but in essence we were because I mean we were trying to rewrite the Beatles and Black Sabbath, and that's what most of grunge was doing anyhow. (laughs) So and we were writing about the same self-deprecating dark subjects, and but we had facts. Yeah, (laughs) that's what separated us. That's what made us original. (laughs) We had fangs and didn't wear flannel. Yeah. No knapsacks either. No knapsacks. Wore the same shoes. <laughs> Who else do you remember from Roadrunner? There's obviously Mark and Monty and Case. Uh, those guys, like the uh, Mark. It's Linda. Mark was always like, he was on the team. Like, you know, like he, I, he probably would have taken a bullet for us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There was a lot of good people that really believed in the band. It was, you know. Case so, had a very so unique was relationship a- with Josh. Tell me more. Like, uh, like you know, we would go through, say we needed something. Like, you know, usually, usually a lot of it was uh, most of the fights that we had with Roadrunner were about money, uh, singles, money and money. And uh, like you know, so they they you know their job is to like you know try to do it for as little bit of money as possible, and our job was to try to take as much money as possible to do what we wanted to do. And uh, like for us, it was uh, you know like we we saw it as like you know these records are never going to recoup. Yeah, that was always the outlook: take the money now and run because we're never going to make anything. We're otherwise. never going to see this money. It's it's never we're never going to see it. Let's get as much as we can now and not live like animals. Yeah. Seriously, that's that's how it was, you know. Like, and they they we weren't the only band like that. I mean, it was no, many sure. at that time. That, that I'm sure. Was, I'm sure there were tons of bands that had the same perspective, you know, because yeah. it's, it's very, you know, and not just Roadrunner, but the industry in that state. Yeah, I'd, I'd imagine that's just standard practice. Yeah. And um, we. At one point, we were we were traveling pretty comfortably. We had we had two tour buses, comfortably, and and uh, we had a, a semi. We had some staging, you know, like we we had you know we had a little bit of production with us and stuff, and that ate at them like it was nobody's business, and they did not want us touring in two buses, right? And they would try to do everything they could to not spend that money. You know, and our argument was, it's our money. <laughs> that's that's that was our argument. It's our money. We're just borrowing it. <laughs> and it, and it got to a point where it was like, look, if you want us to keep, you know, if if the idea is for us to stay out as long as possible, you know, to tour and promote, and where we're all going to make money selling records, then th- this is how we have to do it. And they they were they were adamant about not doing it. And then ultimately what would always happen was if we were having an issue with the people in the New York office or, or, or whatever, like, you know, people in Germany or something like that, Josh had the ability to just go over everybody's head and just call case. 
that was always like, all right, you know, it was like, all right, we're not getting anywhere with these people. Josh is like, I'm calling Case. And then he would, call Case. he would call Case. They'd have a discussion. And Josh would always be like, all right, it's taken care of. <laughs> and so everybody hated him because of that. <laughs> because in a lot of ways, it, it like, you know, it, it, it you know, it, it you know. Over, he undermined the process a bit because yeah, it, yeah, it, it, it just just undercut everybody at the office. Oh, we, you know, we got what we needed. We, you know, we would get our way, and a lot of times, like you know, like a lot of times, even with like you know, like whatever production stuff, uh, you know, like uh, marketing, you know, things mm. like that, or you know, tour support, you know, it would always be like, all right, you're not gonna, you're not gonna play ball, all right. Um, Josh would be like, all right, I'm on the phone. Yeah. Hey, buddy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we got a problem. <laughs> Josh, he should really have been a campaigner for politicians. I mean, when Josh is, believes in something, he can campaign like no one else, man. Yeah. He could talk you into anything. <laughs> that effect on case. But really, in essence, in the end, we were just spending money we didn't have. And we didn't care where they were getting it from. <laughs> We didn't care. Mm. We didn't know if they had it or not. They were a small label. So how do you get? I think, you know, I think in the end it worked out well for everybody because yeah. it's like you know it 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 it, it helped put Roadrunner into a position where they became legit, you know, players. Well, we're here. We're here talking about the 30th anniversary reissue of Solidity. It's still going. You know, it's it's definitely different now than what it was. You know, sure. Say, you know, 10 years ago is certainly different than, you know, what, what it was when, when, you know, typo was, you know, active in, in their heyday and stuff. You know, yeah. I, I don't even know if there's, I, I know of one person that's still at Roadrunner. Dave Roth. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. He's the only one left from the old guard. Everybody else is gone. Everybody's gotten different jobs and, you know, working at different labels. Who knows? They changed careers altogether. <laughs> What was your reaction when that news broke? It was like, what, April 2012? Were you, did you think it was the end of an era? Did you recognize it as that? What's that? When Roadrunner was, um, we call it the Red Wedding. It's obviously a Game of Thrones reference, when loads of people just got the fucking axe. I, uh, you know. We, no, we were, we were, we got the axe years before that. So we were, <laughs> <laughs> It's like saying you care that everybody got fired in the company you got fired from 10 years ago. <laughs> How did it come to an end with you guys then? Because there's there's the widely reported story and that'll be the false one. It fizzled out. The uh, false you know. What do you got? The false one was they released a greatest hits. No, and you won. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, my, my, so you go on. It came down to money. Yeah. SPV had the better deal. And it was simple as that. Yes. Yep. And it was, it was, it was a significant amount of money. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> but it was before it got to the, like, you know, before it got to that, you know, like there was negotiating with Roadrunner and that number was off, but it wasn't like a, a tremendous amount of money. Mm hmm. And they wouldn't budge, so then we just went with the other. They were know, done team. with us, basically. They were, they didn't really. Care I think they were probably like physically exhausted with us by that point. <laughs> they also had huge bands. 
That Slipknot. And they had, yeah, they had other bands on their roster that was successful. You yeah. Know, yeah. Yeah. You know, hey, so they, I guess I guess they saw it as something they didn't really need us anymore, and you know, like we were able to go and you know make more money somewhere else. You know, like I guess the only other thing that would be left is the sentimental value. Yeah, and that wouldn't that doesn't really make sense if you're eating fucking if you're eating noodles all your life, you know. Yeah. But, hey, either way, like I say, these things do yeah, fizzle out and they come to an end. It's usually my my job as as trying to figure out the history of road runners, find patterns where there are none. And I knew there wasn't a pattern here. I knew it was simply, there was just that better deal. It's just simply how it works, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, then, you know, a lot of times, you know, sometimes, a lot of times a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's it. But I do appreciate you coming on and chatting this shit with me. Is there anything that I've not touched on regarding Slow, Deep and Hard, which might be worth us engineering into this conversation for the purposes? Yeah. I appreciate that because my yeah, voice is fucked. So. This was fun, yeah. It yeah. was fun. It was informative. Yeah. <laughs> and entertaining as well. Well, thanks very much. By the time this goes out, the reissue will be available to pre-order from fucking what's it called? Cook something vinyl. Shit. Run out groove. That's it. It'll be available for pre-order. I think it's coming out in August, but I think they want to make a point of it being available for pre-order the week of the anniversary. Right. I think. Uh, who knows? No, but, I, um, I think it's cool. Like, you know, I'd say it's like, even now, like, you know, it's 2021 and people are still talking about the band. You know, that that's, that's great. You know, never would have expected it. Yeah. Not, not in a million years. There's another conversation to be had about the kind of information dissemination of how people experience culture these days and why typo is still poignant. Cause I think there's a massive link in the relationship there. Massive. And that's why I was asking about stakes and was it just a lot of fun and all that stuff and those, and those particular three years, because it's very, and I don't, I don't want to say it like this, but it's, I hate when people say things like, oh, people are too easily offended these days. It's like, well, that's a low-hanging fruit. It's true, but it's low-hanging fruit. We need to peel it back two or three layers to understand it properly, and then we can start making comparisons, and then we can analyze it properly. And yeah, I think that, that's record, that record could have never come out in this day and age. Yep. Never. You know, and I, I think, you know, you know, like Peter, Peter is very fortunate in a way you know, like, it's like to see any kind of like, you know, like something positive out of him passing away was that he, he doesn't have to deal with this because he never would, he was not cut out for this world. <laughs> <laughs> he, he got out just in time. He did. He would go out on the mafia again. <laughs> yeah. And he, he would have. He would have put the certainly, giant 14 foot in his mouth over and yeah. over again. You know, like he would definitely have a lot of uh, commentary on what's going on now. <laughs> yeah. Some, some interesting, interesting songs. Because <laughs> <laughs> this would have been right for him because he loved being like, you know, like being provocative that way and like, you know, pushing buttons. And this, this climate would have been, you know, like you said before, low hanging fruit for him. He would have been. <laughs> mm -hmm. They'd be in front of his house with fire and pitchforks for sure. Yeah. 
Yeah, definitely, man. Well, yeah. well, congratulations on 30 years of it. 30 years of talking about a grainy image of a guy's cock. That's a fucking legacy. <laughs> we don't even know who the guy was. <laughs> I'll fucking find him. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't find out. <laughs> Dude, today has been a fucking nightmare. I, I actually do think, I wonder if I could try and find it if I made the effort. But... <laughs> fucking crazy so i will you know what it's on your list now list of things to do dude if i do if i i'll make a point to have a go at it and if 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 we do speak again i'll let you know this this was fun man i enjoyed this this was cool i appreciate it right get back to go for your pisses and go do your school runs and stuff i appreciate it thanks a lot all the best